And uh, just while you're, you're turning up, um, if you haven't got a copy of our catalogue, please help yourself over on the table there afterwards. Um, we're going to come now to session five, the last teaching session before our question time. And um, it's called The Path of Grace-Based Disciples or Discipleship. The Path. What is the path of making disciples the grace way? You know, we're called to make disciples. Amen. Uh, it's very clear that we don't make disciples until we ourselves have become established. And the problem is that many people make disciples before they have been taught themselves properly. And so they reproduce error. <laughs> Jesus talked about this. He talked about the, the Pharisees. He says, you travel land and sea to win one convert, one proselyte, and then you end up making that person twice as much a child of hell as yourself. You know, you reproduce error. And, and we don't want to do that. You know, I made that mistake in the beginning because often those that are called into ministry, to, to, when I say we're all called into ministry, I understand what I'm saying, but into the pastoral ministry, they make a mistake of not being able to differentiate being called and being sent. See, when God calls you, he calls you to him. If I call you, do I want you to go or do I want you to come? I want you to come. But we think, oh, God wants me to go and serve him. I've been called into ministry. But no, God calls us to come and sit and learn. That's why Paul, when he was saved, if he went straight away, he would have taught what we saw in Romans 7. He would have taught error. He would have taught law, legalism. But he came and he sat until God opened his eyes and taught him the truth. And then he became the greatest preacher, the greatest teacher of grace. He even had to rebuke Peter. And even Barnabas got carried away with going back under old covenant thinking. Uh, but Paul was so crystal clear about the grace of God because he sat for three years at the feet of Jesus and just learned and learned. And, uh, you know, when God sends us, he sends us once we've been taught. The problem is that some are sent and the rest just went. <laughs> and I was one of those. And for years I, I preached legalism. I was, I was a red-hot legalistic preacher bringing condemnation, ministering death every week to our people. You've got to do this. Amazingly, they come back every week to get killed again. <laughs> and uh, then God just opened my eyes and I thought, oh my goodness, what have I been teaching? I've been teaching the wrong thing. I had to repent. And it was Romans that really just opened my eyes and turned me around and pointed me in the right direction. And that's when the change in my ministry started taking place. Um, so we need to know that we are called to make disciples, but you can't make disciples until you yourself have been discipled and, and established. Like I was saying yesterday, you can't take anyone where you haven't been. So don't be, don't be in a hurry to, to make disciples, but get established, and when you're established, you can make disciples. So how do you know? That's what we're going to have a look at in this session. Um, Jesus commanded us to make disciples. What does that mean? How long does the process of discipleship last? And how do you know when it's completed? God has a simple yet specific plan for that which includes three stages. Now when you look at uh, the teaching of Jesus, he often spoke about three stages. He talked about the kingdom of God is like a man casting some seed into the ground. And it springs up. He says, first the corn, uh, first the, the stalk, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. Amen? One, two, three. Another parable, he said, you know, the seed that fell into good ground brought forth some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. Why did he say that? And then he spoke in John chapter 15 about the vine, and he said, if you abide in me, you'll bear fruit, more fruit, much fruit. Amen? So three things again. Now, 
John actually talks about three specific or distinct levels of maturity. So we're going to go to 1 John, not St. John, but 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to look at those. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 12 through to 14. One John chapter two, verses twelve to fourteen. John says, "I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for His namesake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father." I have written to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Okay, so there are three stages there, aren't there? Little children, young men, fathers. Okay, whether you, if you're a female, then it's okay. It's, <laughs> it's generic, okay? Some people say, oh, you know, it's all male, male, male. No, it's not. The church is the bride of Christ. <laughs> okay, that's female gender. It's, it's, it's not referring to gender specific in that sense, but just talking about three stages of growth. Little children, young men, and fathers. Now, how do you know when, which stage you are at in the discipleship process? John says to the little children. He said, I write to you little children because your sins have been forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Amen. Little children need to know that their sins are forgiven. Past, present, future sins have all been dealt with at the cross. Amen. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. Praise God. Um, in other words, you know that you are, you've graduated or you've reached that stage when you have a righteousness consciousness. God wants you to have a righteousness consciousness. Has God forgiven you all your sins? Does it make sense then that he wants you to have a sin consciousness. There's no sense in that whatsoever. Why would he forgive all your sins but still want you to feel guilt? Of course not. And yet many Christians communicate guilt, project guilt onto others. It happens a lot from the pulpit. You know, we spoke earlier on about the fact that we can even use guilt to try to motivate people, project guilt onto people, condemnation. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Not now, not ever. No condemnation whatsoever. The, the sin issue has been dealt with. But guilt is the number one killer. You can't move forward in your Christian life if you are sin conscious. You must have a righteousness consciousness. That's why righteousness is the, is the foundation. We teach righteousness first. Amen. Now, let's go to Hebrews chapter 9. Because I believe that this book, better than any other book in the Bible, deals with this issue of guilt. Incidentally, I, I think that Hebrews is the most difficult book in the New Testament to understand. Even more difficult than the book of Revelation. I think Hebrews, a lot of people misunderstand it and haven't got a clue what it's about. Okay, now, Hebrews was written to Hebrews, to a Jewish community that were making the transition from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. Okay? Now, let's go to chapter 9 and verse 7, because the writer, and we don't know who the writer was, something is Paul, but we don't know for sure, doesn't matter. But he is obviously writing to them 
and speaking to them in language that is familiar to them with their Jewish background. They were familiar with the temple, you know, the veil and the sacrifices and all that sort of thing. And, and, and the book of Hebrews is, is full of that because these were types and shadows of the real that was to come, which is Jesus. Now, let's look at verse 7. It's talking about the tabernacle. In verse 6 it says, you know, um, the priests were allowed to go into the first part. We know that. But, verse 7, into the second part, the high priest went alone, once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. So, the tabernacle or the temple is an object lesson. And it's this, there is something keeping you from enjoying God. It's sin. And the, the proof of that is that there is a veil. God is one side, you are the other. There's a, there's, there's a segregation. That's the lesson. The Holy Spirit is teaching that. As long as that temple is standing, that's the lesson. Interesting, isn't it, that this epistle was written in about AD 68. Two years later, Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was razed to the ground and has never been rebuilt. Because the writer to the Hebrews says the things that can be shaken are going to be shaken. So the things that cannot be shaken will remain. There is no Jewish temple now. There, there is no temple separating the, the, the holy place from the... The Holy Spirit is indicating this. Something has changed. The way into the presence of God is now made available. But many Christians are not enjoying fellowship with God. Why? Look at verse 9. There's another veil. See, the veil was symbolic of, of the, the real veil that keeps veil that keeps people from enjoying God. Verse 9. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to what? The conscience. See, People have sin consciousness and that keeps them from enjoying God <coughs> intimately. That keeps them from enjoying God. Now you'll notice um, in verse 14, we'll go there, chapter 9, verse 14. It's a little bit heavy, this, this sort of teaching, but, but just stick with it for a moment. In the Old Covenant, if somebody did something that made them ceremoniously unclean. They would have to go outside the camp until the priest cleansed them. And he would offer up a heifer, burn it, take the ashes, mix it with water, go outside to that person that was sitting out there and sprinkle this water on them and then he could come back into the camp. Now look at what we read in verse 14. If he could do that. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse what? Your conscience. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see why Jesus died? Not just to forgive you your sins. That's one thing. You'll go to heaven whether you've got a sin consciousness or a righteousness consciousness. But you won't enjoy God if you've got a sin consciousness, that's a, a veil, a barrier between you and God. It's going to keep you from that intimacy that, that we, we, we were saved to enjoy. Now, the writer to the Hebrews talked about, let's go on to perfection. You know what that word perfection means? It's not talking about being morally perfect. It's, the word perfection means to bring something to a state of completion for which it was created. For example, this here is a pulpit. It was created to be used, or a lectern, created to be used for what I'm using it now. To rest my notes on so that I can speak to you in a conference like this. Okay? Now if we use that as a doorstop, <laughs> it's not being used for what it was put together for. It's being used imperfectly. But you bring it from there to here and we have a seminar, it's perfect. It's perfect. It's 
fulfilling the purpose for what it was creating. Now, when the Bible says, let us go on to perfection, what did God create us for? The answer is a relationship with him. We saw that yesterday, that we've been created uniquely with body, soul and spirit, so that we can know God living in us and in, living with us and enjoying him. In the, in the beginning, the Bible says that God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. That's how it was. That's how it was. Then what happened? Sin came in and Adam was driven from the presence of God. There was a flaming sword and an angel with a flaming sword keeping him away, indicating that fellowship was broken. But now Christ has restored that. And in fact, we have more in Jesus than what we had in Adam. In Adam, man was innocent. That means there was no guilt yet. <laughs> but there was always the possibility of him sinning and ruining it, which is what he did. Now, we are made righteous. Righteousness is different to innocence. Righteousness means that we are permanently restored into fellowship with God. And nothing can break that. Why is that? What about if we sin? Well, when we sin, God makes it very clear that God does not impute that sin unto us. Why? Because he's imputed that sin to Christ. God imputes now his righteousness to you. So whether we sin or whether we don't sin, sin does not affect our fellowship with God because that sin has been dealt with righteously because it's already been imputed to Jesus on the cross. And now his righteousness is being imputed to us. David said, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. God never imputes sin to you. He always imputes righteousness to you. Amazing, isn't it? That's the good news of the gospel. Now, for us then to know that we've gone on to perfection, two things are required. Number one, we must be convinced <clears throat> that the thought of our sin has been removed from God's mind. When we fellowship with God, God is not thinking sin. Now, do we believe that? In fact, is that how it is? Let's have a look at what God said under the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. This is one of the promises of the new covenant. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Wow. That's powerful, friends. God never thinks sin when we fellowship with him. He's never thinking, yes, but they... No, no. All our sin has been imputed to Christ. Now he looks at us, he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Because we're in Christ, the beloved. Amen? Amen. So that's one aspect, but that's not the problem. See, God does not have a problem with our sin because it's been dealt with. We're the ones that have the sin consciousness. We're the ones that are thinking sin. We're the ones that are aware of our shortcoming. That's why God established the great exchange, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Amen? Our sin was credited to Jesus on the cross. And righteousness was credited to us. The Bible says this, God made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us. Now, which of our sins <clears throat> did Jesus commit in order to become sin? Answer, none. Our sin was credited to him. Which of his righteous deeds did we commit to become righteous? Answer? None. His righteousness is credited to us. That's the great exchange. Now, we are righteous not by, believe, not by behaving, but by believing. 
We don't behave unto righteousness. That's, re that's what religion teaches. We believe unto righteousness. See, a lot of people say, you know, but we've got to obey God. Hang on a minute. Let me ask you a question. By whose obedience are you made righteous? Romans 5 verse 19 says this, For by one man's disobedience, many, as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. He obeyed, we are righteous. He obeyed perfectly. He obeyed even unto death. And we are made righteous because of his obedience. And, and, and so, you know, when under the Old Covenant, which is a picture of the New, sometimes people ask me, why is the Old Testament so much longer than the New Testament, when the New Testament is more important to us? Because the Old Testament is a picture book. Every truth in the New Testament is illustrated in the Old Testament. And you need more pages for pictures than words. Amen? So we see the Israelite bringing a lamb to the priest for his sin. The moment he handed the lamb over, the Israelite was no longer under investigation. The lamb was the one that was inspected. Is this lamb without spot and without blemish? That's all that mattered. The Israelite was no longer under investigation. And Jesus is our lamb. And when God looks at us, he doesn't look at us, he looks at the lamb. And we know that Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God. He obeyed perfectly so that we are righteous. Now the problem is this, friends. God forgets, but religious, religion reminds. God forgets our sin. It's religion that keeps reminding us of our sin. That's what religion does. It's sin conscious. You know, Let's go, let's go to chapter 10 before we move on here. Chapter 10 of Hebrews. We'll, get, we'll give you an, il an illustration of this, an example of this. Chapter 10, verse 1. For the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they continually offer year by year make those who approach perfect. Okay, remember what we said about perfect, to bring that person into intimate relationship with God. For then, would they not have ceased to be offered? Well, that's obvious, isn't it? If a sacrifice of an animal could have made us perfect with God, why did they have to keep on being offered? Because they didn't do the job. You know, if an Israelite sinned, he would have to take a lamb and bring it through the camp, lead it through the camp and bring it to the priest. Now, all the people in the camp would look and think, oh, what's he done? All the sticky beaks would come out. That's the third time this week he's brought a lamb. What's he up to? What's he doing? Sin, uh, uh, um, sorry, religion reminds. To, it calls to mind sin. For well, the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. God is concerned with consciousness of sin, not just dealing with sin, but with consciousness of sin. And religion will not remove that consciousness of sin. Verse 3, but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. <laughs> a calling to mind every year. Now, here's something that's going to I throw it out there and it's going to cause some of you to, to rethink some things. We do that in the Christian faith. We, know, we say, oh yeah, you know, the, the Roman Catholics in their confession, they, they call to mind sin. But we do that. That's why we asked that question earlier on this morning. Do you believe that you need to confess your sin in order to be forgiven? Oh yes, it says that, you know, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that is the only verse in the whole of the New Testament epistles that say that we need to confess our sins 
to God. Do you know that? Now remember the new covenant did not start in the Gospels. Did not start at Matthew 1 verse 1. The new covenant began at the cross when Jesus said, it's finished. Okay? It ushered out the old and ushered in the new. The veil was rent. We're now in the presence of God. So the New Testament epistles were written for our instruction about understanding the Christian life. And it's amazing that Paul never, ever said we are to confess our sins to God in order to be forgiven. What he taught us is that you are forgiven. When you believe God, you are forgiven, past, present, future. Now, what we've been taught and what I was taught is that God will forgive you your sins every time you confess. So keep short accounts with God. That's something we used to hear regularly. Keep, short, keep confessing. Don't let them pile up. You know, so at every night you say your prayers and you confess, that, Lord God, I shouldn't have said that thing, that I shouldn't have thought that, I shouldn't have done that, please forgive me. So you're dealing with them one by one. You know? Now, let's be consistent. If you believe that, if you believe that you are not forgiven unless you confess, that means two things. Number one, if there is a sin that you've forgotten about and you don't confess it, sorry, you're going to hell. Come on, let's be consistent. And number two, if you're going to wait to the end of the day before you confess and you get knocked down by a truck at midday, too bad, you lose. You lose. You should confess on the run. Confess as you go, you know. You're only as good as your last confession. Is that really what the New Testament teaches? Why did Paul never teach that? Now, the only other scripture is in James, and I'll quickly deal with that, where, where James chapter 5, he says, confess your faults to one another. Now, we've got to keep right with one another. Okay, this is, this is a problem. We, we fall out with one another. Make sure you confess your faults and ask for forgiveness. Get with one another. Not with God. Not vertically, but horizontally. Okay, keep, keep it right in the body of Christ. But with God, he didn't tell us to confess our, our faults to God. So John's the only one. Now, what was John really saying? He was not talking to Christians. He was not talking to Christians. There, there was a teaching. See, John lived 30 years longer than all the other apostles. He lived right till about almost AD 100. And there was a heresy that crept into the church called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism says, our oh, sin's not a problem. Don't worry about sin. That's all the material realm. God is spirit, and so you don't worry about that. And John says, no, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We did that when we came to Jesus. We said, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need your salvation. I need forgiveness. And you were forgiven all your sins. You know? He says later on, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Little children, I write to you because your sins are forgiven. There's nothing outstanding. There's nothing pending your confession. He's talking about these um, Gnostics that were teaching that sin's not even an issue with God. And some are teaching that today. It is. It cost Jesus his life. But if you believe in Jesus, all your sins are forgiven, past, present and future. And so you don't go on confessing, confessing, confessing because you're calling to mind your sin. What do we confess? We confess our righteousness. Now, some people, it's hard to, to make that trans, transition from that way of thinking, that religious way. And so what I say is this, I don't confess my sin, but if I sin and when I sin, I say, Father, I should not have said, thought, or done that thing, but I thank you that even this was forgiven at the cross, and I am righteous in your sight. I'm not asking for something that I've already received. Amen? I'm confessing something that I have. I am now righteous in the sight of God. Now let's, let's just nail this for a moment with verse 11. We'll just move on because of time. Verse 11 it says, every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which could never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, 
sat down at the right hand of God. What does that mean? Verse 14, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Ah, that's, that's nailed it, isn't it? When Jesus died on the cross, he perfected forever those who are set apart under him. And when you believe in Jesus Christ, you receive all that Jesus has done for you. You are perfect. You are complete in him. Positionally, you are complete in him. Amen. You know, I was teaching this in Zambia, and I know that I upset some pastors because I said, you know, some of you, some of you pastors have come here to, over these last few days thinking that you are fathers in the faith. But you, you're not even little children yet. You don't even know that your sins are forgiven. Some of them didn't like it, but it's the truth. Because they're, they're, they're projecting guilt all the time. Projecting guilt on, on the congregation because they've got no revelation. Our sins are forgiven. No righteousness consciousness. That's the starting. That's the starting point. I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven. Amen. Young men. Jesus said, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the wicked one. So here's the difference between little children and young men. Little children know that they have been set free from the penalty of sin. There's no condemnation. The Bible says, he that believes in, in Christ has passed from death to life and will not come into judgment. Do you believe that? You'll never be judged for your sins because that judgment has taken place at the cross. God will be unjust if he judges your sin twice. He's already judged it at the cross. Now, young, little children know that. They're clear about that. They're ready to move on to the next stage. Young men know that they're not only free from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. Sin does not have dominion over them. I'm not saying that we're sinless but we're not under the dominion of sin. Why is that? Because we, we have been made strong. Young men need to be made strong. It says in uh, Lamentations, it is good for a young man to bear the yoke in his youth. We see that in, in many illustrations. For example, David, a young man. He went through many trials and he learned to become strong. Joseph, a young man, 17 years of age, sold as a slave and he became strong through those trials. The Bible says that iron entered his soul. Now, how are we made strong? That's the question. Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, notice this. We're not told to be strong for the Lord, but be strong in the Lord. Amen. Amen. Oh, be strong for Jesus. That's sending you back in the flesh. Now be strong in the Lord. Let's take us into the grace of God to be strong in the Lord. The one who tries to be strong for the Lord puts on the armor of flesh. The one who tries to be strong in the Lord puts on the armor of God. You remember David illustrated again when he went out of battle against Jehovah? Saul brings out his armor. Saul is a picture of the flesh. I did it my way. Amen. Put my armor on. David couldn't even stand up in it. Get that thing off. He took what? Five stones. Five is the number of grace. <laughs> and he went out against the giant, not in the armor of flesh, but in the armor of God. Praise God. So in order to be strong in the Lord, it is essential. Oh yeah, let's just look at this verse here. Paul says to Timothy, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So can you see the picture here? A young man has learned not to live by the flesh, but to, he's learned to step into the dimension of the grace of God. Grace is God's ability in the place of our inability. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm no longer living in a sense of deficiency, that God has brought me into a situation where I do not have the resources. No, in every situation, I'm empowered by the grace of God. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen? Amen? That's learning to live by the grace of God. Now, very quickly, in order to be strong in the Lord, it is essential to learn how to access the grace of God. 
How do we do that? First of all, understand righteousness. That's why I spent the whole of last night teaching about the righteousness of God. Not self-righteousness, but the righteousness of God. What is the key to understanding the righteousness of God? Is that we do not trust in our righteousness, in anything of us, but in what God has provided for us in Jesus. Amen? Now, when you understand that, when you understand that, you've got a righteousness consciousness because you're looking to Jesus, you learn to live that way in the practical outworking of your life. You learn to live by the grace of God. It's not by my strength. It's not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of God. I'm learning to live in the grace of God. This is wonderful. You, you, you learn that, hey, God gives grace. For every situation, he gives grace. I can do all things through Christ. I, I don't have to hit the panic button. God knew about everything that would encounter me this day, and he has empowered me for the totality of life. Amen? Amen. So righteousness comes first. Let's look at Romans chapter 5. Let's just quickly go back there. See, I, 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 when I discovered the grace of God, I started preaching the grace of God, and people just didn't get it. And then God said to me one day, you are not preaching it the way Paul preached it. I said, well, how did Paul preach it? And the Lord showed me he first of all taught righteousness. First righteousness, when people understand the righteousness of God in Christ, they will then understand how to live by the grace of God. So look at chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, having been justified, that means made righteous, declared righteous by God, by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Can you see that? Having been justified first by faith in Jesus, made righteous with God, we now have access into this grace in which we stand. Chapter 5, verse 17, says, uh, chapter, look at verse 21, I think. As sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness. You see that? Grace reigns through righteousness. When you know that you are righteous in Christ, you know also that you are empowered for all things. The second thing about accessing the grace of God is that God gives grace to the humble. Now what does it mean to be humble? Does it mean when you say, oh, you know, I'm no one, I'm nothing. I'm just a worm. <laughs> no, no, no. Never call yourself what God doesn't call you. Amen? God never says you're nothing. He says you're kings and priests and sons of God and so on. To be humble does not mean to say, I am nothing, but to say, without him, I can do nothing. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. That's humility. And then Paul turns that the other way around. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So we're, we're learning not to trust in our own resources, but we're trusting in the grace of God. That's humility. And then thirdly, of course, we ask for it. You have not because you ask not. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, he talks about coming to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. So we come to the throne of grace and we ask for grace. Lord, please give me grace. I can't do this in my strength, in my resources. I do not have the ability to handle this situation, but please give me your grace to walk through this situation. And he will. Amen. So... Little children have a righteousness consciousness. Young men have learned to live by the grace of God. What about fathers? What about fathers? Let's finish up here very quickly. A qualification of fathers is that they have children. Now in the spiritual sense, that means to make disciples, spiritual children. A true leader is not just someone who is followed but one who makes disciples of those who follow him. See, some people say, oh, but he's got a big church. 
But if he hasn't made disciples of those who follow him, then he's got a big failure. Amen. Jesus said, make disciples. Now, some leaders have a need to be needed. Their goal is just to get people to follow them. They don't care whether those who follow them change. Their goal is not to see people transform, but to justify their position as a leader. Their aim is not discipleship, but followers. In fact, they make disciples unto themselves, as Paul said in Acts chapter 20, not unto Christ. So those people become dependent on them. You know, there's a huge church in, I won't mention the country, a huge church um, with over 20,000, I believe, whose leader has just fallen big time. And, 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 you know, smite the shepherd and the sheep are scattered. Now, Jesus taught us not to become dependent upon a man. The goal of real ministry is, is to get people to become Christ-dependent. When people are Christ-dependent, if I stand or fall, or if I'm in Australia or on the other side of the world, those people are still standing because they're not leaning upon me. They're leaning upon Jesus. Amen? So the true goal of all Christian ministry is Christ-dependency. Are we connecting people to the vine, to Jesus, as the source of their life? So a leader then, to sum this up, or a father, is one who understands righteousness consciousness, one who is strong in the grace of God and is able to teach those two things to others. Simple, isn't it? You know, you learn these things yourself. No more sin conscious. I will not come under condemnation ever again. You know that you're established in that? You're convinced? You, you'll be tested on it. You'll come under legalistic preaching, but when you know who you are in Christ, you'll sit there and you'll say, you're not getting me. I know who I am in Christ. This is not bringing me under condemnation or under control because I'm righteous in Jesus. So you'll be tested on it. And then when, when you can sit there through legalism and it's just bouncing off, you know I'm established. My sins are forgiven, I know it. Secondly, you know that you're living by the grace of God, not by your own resources, the fleshly resources. You're living by God's grace. Then you're ready to disciple others. Reproduce that in them, and they will then reproduce that in others, and they will rep reproduce that in others. That's the grace way of making disciples. Amen. 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 Okay, look, we've got, so we've got about 30 minutes. Um, if there are any questions, any, any kind of loose ends that we've left there, we want to tidy those up. So if you've got any questions, just ask them now or any comments you'd like to make, just stick your hand up and... Yes, Leah. Yeah. Being sanctified. That word sanctified means set apart. We are set apart. Now... Jesus is our justification and he's our sanctification. See, we often, this is the trap we make, is that justification, that's what Jesus did for us. Sanctification, that's what we've got to do. We've got to make ourselves holy. That's often how it's taught. So it becomes a work. We are being set apart. Every day, God is setting us apart, or Jesus is setting us apart to God. We are sanctified by him. We're not perfect in our walk, but we are perfect in our position. He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified every day. In this wicked, sinful world, God is setting us apart from the rest of creation unto God. We are God's chosen people, God's special people, his church, his bride, his body. So that word sanctify means to set apart. Uh, unfortunately, it is taught in uh, you know, this, this works trip thing. Okay, we've got to sanctify ourselves now. We've got to, we've got to you know, make all these changes in our life. But we've seen that that then will bring us back into legalism. We've seen Paul's way of um, teaching change and growth. Um, but the word sanctify just simply means that we are set apart unto God. I'm not quite sure how it applies to our family. Yeah. My family has changed. Yes. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. No, it doesn't mean that. Um, see, that, that scripture that I quoted earlier on, if we can just go to that, it's in 1 Corinthians 7, um, where Paul is trying to make this contrast, if you like, between Old Covenant thinking and New Covenant thinking. The Old Covenant thinking is that if the clean touches the unclean, the clean becomes unclean, has to go outside the camp. So you see this over and over again in Leviticus especially, Deuteronomy, is that uh, if somebody touched a sore or something like that or something that was unclean, they had to go outside and be made clean because the, clean, the unclean made the clean unclean. Now Paul says it's the other way around when you're in Christ. Uh, in fact, it's quite amazing. You know, Jesus healed a leper, but he touched that leper. Now under the old covenant, he would have been unclean. Now just imagine this, the Pharisees were out to get Jesus, right? And so here's a leper, everybody's drawing back, <gasps> don't touch him. <laughs> Jesus touches him. And the Pharisees jump in, he touched the leper, he's unclean. Jesus would have said, leper? What leper? There's no leper here. <laughs> Because the moment the clean touched the unclean, the unclean became clean. Now, <laughs> so there's, no one, there's no leper there. Now let's go to chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, um, chapter 7 and verse, Paul's talking about marriage and, and all kinds of different scenarios. Now what if, a, if a, two people are unbelievers and then one of them gets saved? He talks about, okay, if they wanted to, the unbeliever wants to depart, then let them depart. You're free in that situation. But if they want to remain, you know, with this whole covenant mentality, is that person polluting me? Is that person dragging me down? No, you're, you're lifting that person up. You're exposing that person to special privileges from God. You, the Word of God is in their home and in their lives and, and they're hearing your testimony. They're seeing you change. You are sanctifying them. You are setting them apart more and more to, to the operation of God in their life. So this is what he says um, in uh, verse 14. The unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy which means that they are not, uh, they're, they're kind of included, if you like, in the blessings that come upon the righteous. They're not saved because God doesn't have any grandchildren, right? He only has children. They've got to be born again. Now, um, regarding someone that was saved or what, had made a profession of Christ or... or Yeah, that's right. They're no longer in your home. So that, that scripture would not be addressing that, that scenario. But somebody else did ask me in the break, you know, if we're under grace, does that mean that, you know, we don't have to uh, witness or, or pray for our um, relatives? Or, you know, some people even confess, Lord, I confess and confess that they're going to get saved. I confess this, I confess that. In the end, when you live that way, your faith becomes a work. You know, you've got to be careful that your faith does not become a work. It's God who works in them. We live before them. Now the danger is that we can think, if they catch us out on something, then we've failed the law. Then we come under condemnation. That's what the enemy would use. Well, they're going to catch you out sooner or later. Because <laughs> you're not perfect and I'm not perfect. We're humans. We do fail. Um, but we're not professing to be righteous or, or holy in ourselves. Our righteousness is in Christ. That's why the believer always has a testimony. It's not about what I'm doing for the Lord. It's, it's always about what he's done for me. So even when you're going through a difficult time and you're stumbling and you're faltering and you're failing, you've still got a testimony because your testimony is not about what you've done for Jesus. We're finished with all that. That's religion. Our testimony is about what he's done for us. 
So we can still be a witness to our family and we, we can still uh, sanctify them in that sense that they're exposed to more privileges of knowing God and, and uh, being exposed to the gospel than somebody who does not come into contact with a believer. So that's basically what I'm saying. They're not saved if they, if they don't, haven't put their personal trust in Christ, but they certainly are exposed to, the, you know, they've got, they've got more advantages. And certainly they don't, they don't drag you down. They don't defile you in any way. Yeah, Megan. Yeah. Yes, sorry is one thing. And yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm not talking That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, that's a good. Yes, I will. Okay. The 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 question was, um, if I could just summarise it quickly, is um, okay. If if um, we are forgiven all our sins, we've got to be careful that we don't just have a blasé sort of attitude. That, okay, I'm forgiven, so I don't even have to be sorry for what I've done. Now, there's a difference between being sorry about our behaviour, regretting the fact that we've behaved this way, and asking for forgiveness. If we ask for forgiveness, it's a belief that we're not yet forgiven until that act. So, so it's that act that brings forgiveness. Can you see? Whereas the Bible clearly teaches, no, we are already forgiven all our sins. So we've got to be clear about that. But being sorry for our behaviour is another thing. And I often ask why it is I did that. Why did I behave like that? And Lord, if there's something in my heart that is not right, my attitude, my, my, my um, uh, well, yeah, just what's in my heart that needs to be cleansed, then cleanse that from my heart so that, you know, out of the fountain of my heart, I will behave differently next time. So definitely, you know, we, we need to feel sorry for wrong behaviour. Being sorry is one thing. Being condemned is another thing. There's no condemnation. So it's important to stand fast in that. Otherwise, the devil would drag us down. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, for example, let, let, let's see the, uh, addiction, for example. Um, usually, it's a big subject, I know, but people that have got an addictive behaviour, they keep going back to the same things. It's usually because um, they are not rightly related or relating on a horizontal level and a, a vertical level. So in that void, that vacuum, when we get emotional pain, we run to things instead of being whole and um, mature and going to people. So if, if you've been brought up in a dysfunctional home, you, you've, you've learned coping mechanisms, okay? And those coping mechanisms usually are forms of addiction, addictive problems repetitive behavioural problems. So we run to them because we've learned something. I know where to get relief when I feel this emotional pain. God has designed other way for us to get relief from our emotional pain, and that is relationally. So we've got to learn to have wholesome relationships in our families and in, and in the body of Christ where we can talk freely about what's in our heart. In a dysfunctional home, 
people are not learn people have never learned to share their feelings so they suppress them and they feel the pain and they find relief in other ways so i'm kind of just you know using this as an example so you ask now why did i do that why instead of going and just talking to someone that i have a good relationship with and and just saying hey you know what i feel like this right now instead of doing that i've dealt with my pain another way a sinful way and so it's a good good thing to examine why did i do that why did i behave that way and what would be the way that god would want me to respond to that pain that hurt that that trial that i'm going through and so you know it kind of it just when you examine when you're honest enough to examine why you did that and ask god why then he'll probably show you the new creation way of dealing with that pain in the future. Yeah. Forgiveness. Yes, yes. That's what James talks about. Yeah. 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 So to get that right. I think there's a, there's a need for a lot more teaching on that line, Beverly, in the church today. Um, just for the sake of the camera, the, the question was, you know, even though we don't need to ask God's forgiveness because we're forgiven for everything, you know, as James said, we do need to seek forgiveness and reconciliation with those that we hurt. That's a big thing in the New Testament. You know, um, I don't want to go into that now, but, but it is a major thing. And so, you know, God doesn't want us to be sort of gung-ho about sin, in the sense of it doesn't matter I'm forgiven so we can hurt people uh, and, and we can upset people no no God is very very concerned about the way that we treat one another and um, it will have repercussions not that it's the judgment of God but if we sow to the flesh from the flesh we will reap corruption and destruction in our relationships and so on Steve you had a question yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, that's a good question. Okay, for, so for those that didn't hear, the question was, you know, how does grace work with our children who who, who do need discipline and so on? Now. Um, you know, without using the guilt manipulation. There's two different things there. One is we still don't use guilt to manipulate our children. For example, you don't say to one child, why can't you be like your brother? God will never do that to us. God will never put you alongside another believer and say, you know, you just really need to shape up and be like him or her. God doesn't do that. Uh, so don't, don't use guilt to manipulate your children. But the Bible says that the law is for the lawless. Okay, so the law has a purpose and it puts a boundary around behavior until that grace of God changes people. So you don't need laws to change people then you, you, because people are being changed by grace. So we find that with children, especially before they get saved, but also when they're growing up because they're immature and they're learning boundaries and learning consequences for wrong behavior and so on. So we have to uh, give give some kind of um, boundaries, set some boundaries. Otherwise, and that's for their safety, for their protection. Otherwise, you know, they're gonna they're gonna play in the road when trucks are coming down. They're gonna stay out late at night and, you know, disappear. You know what I'm saying? So you have to give them guidelines. But you know what it's like as a child. The more they grow up, you you ease off, and and, and you put them on trust. So you say, okay, you be home by such a time. And if they're home by that time. 
then you know they, they, they've been trusted in that area. But if they're not home, then you have to bring the law back because they're not yet mature enough and responsible enough to handle that kind of yeah responsibility. So you know, parents um, do set rules and guidelines for children, which need to be enforced by by discipline or, or, or even reward and so on. But um, and, and even in the world, see the unregenerate need rules. We, we are the most legislated country in the world. Somebody told me. The, the amount, I mean, you know, this new government in Queensland, I don't want to get into politics, but it's just trying to cut back a lot of the legislation that's, you know, that's just really superfluous. You know, every law needs about another 10 laws to define it and clarify it. You know? And, and well, are we kids or are we, you know, I found if you treat people as adults, guess what? They start behaving like adults. If you treat them like kids and if you treat them suspiciously and you warn and you check on them, you'll find them behaving suspiciously. So it's a question of, okay, children definitely do need boundaries for their safety and their protection, but they need to know that it's come from love. Not because we're harsh and we're hard and we, we just want to give them a hard time, but we, we love them too much to see them self-destruct. We're not going to see you, you know, kind of put your hand on a hot stove and just then giggle, say, you learned your lesson? <laughs> There's no love in that, friends. So you, you say, don't put your hand on the hot stove because that is going to really, really hurt you very much. That's a law, you can say it's a law, but it's a, it's a boundary that will protect them and keep them safe until they're of a mature age to make that decision for themselves.